This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the September 2nd edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today, Ambassador Dick Bowers and I will present the top items in global current events and give you analysis and commentary. Dr. Breck Walker is uh, off this week. Uh, He'll be back next week to uh, fill in our trio here. Dick, good to see you as uh, we open open another month in 2020, uh, another month uh, pregnant with possibilities. There you go. Good to see you. Good to be back. Well, uh, let's uh, let's jump right in here, and uh, we're going to talk uh, first before we get uh, too far in our program. Remind uh, people about some upcoming programs we have. Uh, we are uh, proud to uh, be participating in a terrific. Uh, project with a number of other World Affairs Councils, uh, COVID Complexities, a global town hall. Uh, This is a collaboration between World Affairs Councils and journalists from around the world, including Russia, China, uh, Iran, Latin America, uh, who will be talking with us uh, this evening at um, uh, 6 Central Time, 7 Eastern Time, uh, in a uh, a webinar, and the link is on our website, uh, about how the developing world is coping. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, um, he's a uh, uh, a physician of some renown, worked in the Obama administration on the Affordable Care Act. He'll be the keynote speaker. And tomorrow night, uh, we'll be talking about uh, COVID-19 returning to normal vaccines, therapeutics, what the other side of COVID looks like, a collection of public health uh, officials uh, and others uh, from across the country to talk about uh, the COVID uh, situation. That's, that's the September 3rd, right? That uh, got a typo in there, I think. That's, that's correct. Thank you uh, um, for that correction. So tomorrow, Thursday, September 3rd, and uh, tonight's uh, program is Wednesday, September 2nd, 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 6 p.m. Central Time. So please uh, take a look at that. It's going to be a terrific program. Uh, we also have coming up, uh, we're very proud to present the Election 2020 uh, Project, a, a series of panels, and we've got really a, an all-star uh, cast of uh, panelists, distinguished speakers, ambassadors, um, uh, plenipotentiary, is that the uh, the term, uh, Mr. Ambassador? Normally they link it with extraordinary and plenipotentiary. Extraordinary and plenipotentiary. No, yeah. no, no potentates, but... Uh, and, and, and you always knew the guy wanted something from you when he <laughs> shake your hand and say, oh, excellency, excellency, how are you? Well, we have, we have a few of those and, and some other distinguished speakers uh, from think tanks and elsewhere, uh, thought leaders. And the idea is to present uh, the critical topics that people should understand a little bit more about uh, as we look forward to the election on November 3rd. Uh, we're doing this uh, project in connection with Belmont University's hosting of the third presidential debate on October 22nd. And uh, we will also have uh, watch parties on the evening of the debate as well as uh, election eve. So uh, look for that on our calendar as well. And when you're uh, working through the calendar there, you can see what, uh, what we've done in, in terms of updating our, uh, our website. So um, Dick, I think uh, 
Uh, well, let me uh, also add one more note uh, while we're uh, while we're at it to talk about uh, membership in the World Affairs Council. Uh, as as people who uh, participate in this program, though, uh, we do uh, quite a lot of programming. Uh, via webinar, but we also are active in educational outreach programs like the Academic WorldQuest program. So between our community outreach via webinars and, and other programs and our education outreach, we're a busy little World Affairs Council here. And uh, we ask that uh, you support our work through uh, a membership or a, uh, a gift to the council. You can visit tnwac.org uh, to find out more about how you can uh, support this World Affairs Council. It's a unique organization in Tennessee, a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational group. Okay, um, Dick, I think we're, uh, we're pretty Topics. close to, uh, to kicking it off here. So if, if you want to um, jump into our uh, topics. Du well, we're gonna have three kind of very different but very interesting topics. First, we're gonna talk a little bit about Japan and uh, Prime Minister Abe has submitted his resignation, so he's standing down. What does that mean for Japan and the region and for the U.S.? And then we're going to pivot to Russian election interference. Here we go again. And that's uh, what are they doing? How are they doing it? Why aren't we better prepared than we were last time? And all that good stuff. And finally, we're going to go on a med cruise and talk about the Turkish Greek face-off in the Eastern Mediterranean, which is uh, spicing up the politics in the area and making a lot of people nervous that this could lead to actual shooting warfare. So those are our three topics. Pat? Dick, I, I made a, a couple of med cruises, but they weren't the kind of cruises that, that you, you might have gone on. <laughs> well, what's going on out there right now are not the kind that uh, we would like to take, but... Uh, yeah. Let, I, Sides are pushing their own naval fleets into the region, so we'll get into that. That's uh, the United States has got a vessel out there, I understand. So. Yep, uh, for sure. Okay, so well, let's uh, let's get into our topics. But before we, uh, one last thing before we do the uh, question of the week, and uh, Dr. Breck Walker, who is usually our our quiz uh, reader here, he he typically gets uh, foreign languages involved here, and and I've, I've gotten some pushback on that, and he'll probably if he's watching will. Uh, will take issue with me that there are no uh, foreign names to pronounce here. It's uh, pretty straightforward. So the question is, the, uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence will no longer brief key congressional committees on this issue. Is it A, Chinese espionage, B, election security, C, Russian oligarchs investments, D, cooperation between domestic and foreign national uh, nationalist groups? And we'll have the answer at the end. And just a reminder, if you subscribe to the Tennessee World Affairs Council newsletter, and you can do that on our website, uh, you'll get uh, a 10-question quiz in the email every Monday morning, the What in the World weekly quiz. And you can, uh, if you're a member of the World Affairs Council, actually, um, when your scores are, are answered at the end of the week, be eligible for a, a nice prize. This month, it was the uh, uh, just released book by Dr. Uh, Thomas Schwartz, friend of the World Affairs Council, on uh, Henry Kissinger and American uh, politics. And uh, uh, Dick, you you uh, you're a regular quiz guy. Un yeah. Unfortunately, um, members of the board of the World Affairs Council and uh, and uh, owners of Pizza Huts and uh, uh, McDonald's are not eligible to win our our prize. So uh, you typically do uh, very well. Um, 
I, I do notice Enjoy something. It. I would urge people to just to take it. I mean, the, the, the one thing is uh, no Googling. You got you to gotta go with what you got, right? So you can't just say, oh, I can it, find this out. It, 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 is, uh, it is the honor system. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think. And, and uh, I think it's growing, right, Pat? I mean, you, you are now syndicating this to other World Affairs Councils, are you we, not? We are. And if there's any uh, other World Affairs Councils out there listening, and we'd be happy to have a conversation about uh, uh, subscription to uh, to the the quiz, but I was going to say that I noticed, Dick, that sometimes uh, you take issue with <laughs> with some of the questions. But we we won't uh, we won't. I get do it. I do take issue sometimes, <laughs> but that's all right. We won't get uh, too too far into that. Well, uh, Dick, um, in the news this week, a uh, significant development in uh, leadership in, in Japan, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who uh, I believe is the longest serving He is indeed prime the longest minister. serving prime minister in Japanese history. And, and he stepped down uh, basically for there's a downturn in his health situation, which has had for quite some time, but it's basically under control, sort of a chronic inflammatory bowel disease, which I guess can be quite painful and difficult to deal with. Yeah. And so he uh, basically said in a press conference that he would be stepping down. He confirmed that he would stay on until his successor was was named. And that's a, a process by which, as I understand it, the, the party members, the members of the Congress of Japan in his party will caucus and they will select his successor to serve the rest of his term. Um, he was prime minister before and resigned in, in 2007 after a flare-up of his condition, but then he won a landslide victory in 2012, and now he has been in that job until now. So he is the longest-serving prime minister in Japan uh, and will be stepping down as a result of his illness. Yeah, so, I, th I think uh, I think that in uh, in parliamentary systems, it's the uh, the party with the the most seats. They uh, right. they they put in place the prime minister. They choose the the leader of their party to to do that in places like the United Kingdom and and other parliamentary systems. Which makes for a you know a pretty easy transition usually because the the, the party votes for the person that they want to have unless there's some standoff. But, right. Uh, there are two or three primary candidates that are, are out there that uh, we'll find out probably in the next week or so what, what's happened with that. Yeah. Um, Abe is really, you know, known for his economic package that he put together dubbed Abenomics instead of economics, it's Abenomics. And that basically succeeded in boosting jobs and brought an end to 20 years of deflation in Japan. But Japan, regardless of who takes over, is going to have some major issues. Uh, to deal with. One of the things that they don't have to deal with, it seems to me, is COVID. Uh, Abe said that he would uh, was very happy to see that the measures were in place to protect the people of Japan, and therefore the timing of his uh, stepping down would not harm that effort. Japan uh, is about what? One third the size of the United States. So the United States is two and a half times. Yeah, in terms of population. In terms of population, right? Yeah. And 
two and a half times. So Japan has had 68,000 cases of COVID. The United States has had over 6 million cases of COVID. Japan has had about 1,296 deaths as of the data I got today. Yeah. Uh, the United States has had almost 190,000. So two and a half times larger, but we have 92 times the number of cases and 146 times the number of deaths. So they were, they're obviously doing something right. Yeah, Japan was uh, was lauded, uh, I think, by the WHO early on for their um, vigorous uh, uh, attack against the, the spread of COVID, and I I think it's it's remarkable that uh, uh, it's it's almost a cultural norm. Uh, I I lived in Japan for three years, and you would see people wearing masks who might have had uh, you know an upper respiratory. Uh, issue going on, so that it's it's kind of a cultural norm that uh, people wear masks as, as opposed to the United States, where it's it's become somewhat politicized. Um, yeah, I don't think "somewhat" is the right adjective. But it has uh, become politicized. Yeah, I uh, I teach English as a second language as an avocation. I mean, we had a class yesterday, and we got into this, and the uh, the Japanese students. Basically, so why don't you people wear masks? We wear them all the time. It's not a big deal. And I didn't have a good answer for it. Anyway, when Abe steps down, uh, the question of what's going to happen to the very strong and long-standing relationship with the United States. A few years back, one of Abe's predecessors sort of flirted a little bit with trying to tilt toward China. But that ended, and Abe has been a staunch supporter of the U.S., Japan relationship. So who comes in and what's going to happen? Because China, as everybody knows, is uh, doing things in Asia and tensions are on the rise. Um, there are six different governments, for example, including Japan, involved in territorial disputes with China on areas in the South China Sea. And one of the things, for example, is the Senkaku Islands, which are what the Japanese call them and the Chinese call them Diaoyu Islands. Both sides claim sovereignty. Right. So, yeah, that's uh, that's an East uh, East China Sea, East China sea. chain, but uh, but there are tensions in the South China Sea that uh, that Japan's concerned about because they they rely very heavily on uh, international shipping lanes that go through the South China Sea for. Example: uh, oil and uh, gas that comes from the Middle East, yeah. uh, but the Senkaku uh, chain is claimed by uh, uh, China, uh, Taiwan, and um, Japan. And <clears throat> I think uh, two years ago, a cover on the Economist magazine um, featured the Senkaku Islands, and and the the title was uh, the the next major war in the world could erupt over this little rock. And uh, it was talking about the, uh, the claims to that. And, uh, you know, as, as we look at these various claims, and we're going to talk about the claims in the Eastern Mediterranean, it's not just the, uh, the territory of the this or that rock or even larger island that people are concerned about, but it's the economic exclusion zone that you draw around that uh, piece of land where there could be uh, uh, underwater resources, uh, oil, natural gas, minerals, and such that people are, are disputing 
uh, ownership of. So the Senkakus claimed by both China and Japan has been a point of contention. And I think uh, Prime Minister Abe has done um, <clears throat> the diligent work in ensuring that the United States included the uh, the ownership of the Senkakus by Japan as part of its uh, mutual defense pact. Yep. Well, the China thing is gonna, gonna rock along with Hong Kong and what's gonna happen with Taiwan. So obviously successor is gonna have to deal with that. And uh, fortunately the alliance with the US looks, looks pretty, pretty solid. And there is also something called the quadrilateral, quadrilateral security dialogue, which involves the United States, Japan, Australia, and India all sort of focusing on a free and open Indo-Pacific region. So these kinds of things, I think, regardless of who replaces Abe, are going to stay, stay in place and will be important in the long run. And that's uh, that's that's called the Quad, right? Not not to be confused with the Squad. That's something. That's else. the Quad or the Quad Two. You're right. Q U A D, right? Yeah. Uh, what you used to walk through when you were going from one class to another at the university campus, right? Right, right. Yep. So, so uh, looking to the future, I, I uh, uh, you know, a lot of analysts don't see a, a rosy path ahead for Abe's successor. He, they've got a lot of issues to uh, resolve. They've had uh, uh, negative uh, growth over the last three uh, quarters. Um, the annualized rate for the, the April to June quarter was about uh, uh, a contraction of about 30%. And, yeah. and that uh, pretty well wiped out a lot of the gains that Abenomics had made in, in uh, bringing the, the economy uh, back around. So, so Abe's successor, whoever that is, somebody from the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party is, is going to face a, a tough road ahead in terms of the economics. As, you know, frankly, the, the rest of the world, we're looking at a global recession. And Japan, despite their, their good uh, situation vis-a-vis -vis COVID, uh, is not immune from the economic impact. Oh, and their population is, is contracting, as you know. And so it's getting older and it's getting smaller. And that's going to have a long-term deleterious effect on its economic performance. So... Japan will end the story for me is uh, I think the Liberal Democratic Party will A, stay in power after the elections which come up I think in 2021 uh, and B, whoever succeeds, Mr. Abe is going to have a handful of things they're going to have to look at, but the relationship with the United States I think is going to be in good hands. Yeah. Okay, um, moving right along, let's uh, let's take a look at what's going on in the news regarding uh, Russia and election interference and, and our title, here we go again. Um, but first, let me remind our uh, our guests today to, to uh, put some questions in the, the Q&A tab on your screen and, and we'll be happy to answer them. Uh, but we'll, we'll tell you up front that uh, Breck Walker isn't with us today, so no hard questions. <laughs> Um, the, uh, the news, uh, it seems to be a, a constant drumbeat that, that, uh, Russia is, uh, continuing to, uh, to be involved in what's going on in our election. And, uh, before we, we jump into the news, I, I would mention, um, to those of you who are familiar with our Global Tennessee podcast 
and our uh, archives of these uh, webinars on YouTube, uh, I suggest you take a look at, uh, at two things. The first one is an interview I did with uh, Mr. Malcolm Nance. Uh, he wrote a book called The Plot to Hack America that uh, was released in 2016, about a week before the uh, intelligence community released its finding in October 2016 that uh, Russia was involved in information operations against the 2016 election. Uh, so I, I had an opportunity to talk with uh, Malcolm Nance um, when he was here last year, and uh, he, he really outlined in great detail how Russia had put together the Internet Research Agency and uh, all these uh, all these other uh, organizations that were involved in uh, not just hacking, but information operations, uh, bots and misleading information and, and so forth. The other thing that I would suggest you take a look at is the uh, webinar we did uh, a couple of months ago with um, uh, a team from the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Uh, our uh, board member, Mark Braden, arranged this uh, interview with uh, Rachel Dean Wilson and David Salvo of ASD and, and the panel was called Foreign uh, Interference Undermining Election 2020 Securing Democracy Panel. So you can find that on our youtube.com slash TNWAC uh, channel on the uh, internet. And that, that will provide you some good information about what's going on in general about the uh, interference in the 2020 election. But let's just talk uh, a little bit about this timeline uh, just to remind people of where we where we were uh, four years ago. Uh, in October 2016, uh, the Director of National Intelligence and the uh, Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security released a statement in early October that uh, the Russians were interfering with our elections. And this was just kind of a, a uh, uh, a warning shot that uh, we knew they were involved in some things. Uh, the Obama administration took some uh, actions uh, actually after the election was held, uh, sanctions and uh, restricting access uh, to Russian diplomats, et cetera. Uh, but uh, there really was not much pushback uh, at the time to the uh, what the Russians were doing. Uh, obviously, in November 2016, President Trump was elected. In January 2017, the director of national intelligence, released a statement uh, again on Russian interference, uh, but adding the, uh, the additional information that uh, the Russians were working in support of the uh, election of President Trump and against uh, candidate uh, Clinton. Uh, fast forward a little bit and uh, these, these reports continue to circulate. Obviously, we had the, uh, the Mueller report uh, in, uh, in 2019. Uh, but there was uh, an interesting uh, footnote in uh, Helsinki during a meeting between President Trump and Vladimir Putin. Uh, someone someone asked the question uh, of President Trump what he thought about Russian election interference. And uh, he responded that he uh, had asked uh, Vladimir Putin about that and was told that they were not interfering with the election uh, despite the uh, conclusion of our intelligence community uh, President Trump said he believed uh, Mr. Putin and, uh, and not the US intelligence community. Um, fast forward to uh, uh, this year, you know, we've had the, uh, the PDB briefing on Russian bounties. Uh, so the Russians are aggressively getting involved in US elections, uh, US uh, operations around the world. And 
the uh, the current reports uh, are really no uh, uh, no so big that, surprise. At the the PDB for folks out there who might we don't understand all these initials. This is the President's daily briefing. So the intelligence community, and in this case the CIA, is responsible for amalgamating all the intelligence that they receive and putting together a briefing up to the president of the things that he should be aware of or that seem to be coming down the pike that are going to kind of get his attention. Um, presidents have in the past been known to spend two or three hours talking to the analysts about some of these things. In this case, the data out there contend that Mr. Trump doesn't like to read the PDB. And when somebody briefs him, uh, he wants it short and sweet and out of there and he can move on to other things. So the information is there, whether it's used or not is another question. So uh, Dick, the, uh, the reports this week, uh, there was a New York Times article yesterday that uh, talked about Russians again targeting Americans with disinformation. And this was a report about uh, Facebook and Twitter and an effort uh, by our, our friends at the Internet Research Agency, which was involved in the 2016 uh, disinformation campaign. Uh, they are at it again, but uh, they've refined their methods. And, and there's um, a good piece in Foreign Affairs, if anybody wants to dig a little deeper, about uh, the overview of, of these kinds of operations. Uh, they, they didn't have the uh, information that was going to be released about the Facebook report when they wrote this longer foreign affairs piece. But in the New York Times, uh, the news is that uh, the, the uh, IRA, the Internet Research Agency, is uh, trying to repeat uh, its efforts to push voters uh, away from the presidential candidacy of uh, Joe Biden and to help President Trump. And what they say uh, is going on is that um, the, the IRA uh, is recruiting journalists through this uh, sham uh, website that's called Peace Data. Uh, and they're recruiting journalists to write articles and paying them. Uh, and what they've done is they've, they've gone out and found um, far left uh, journalists who have written critically of, of uh, candidate Biden, Vice President Biden, and are promoting those articles on this peace uh, data website and also on uh, Facebook and Twitter. So the, the idea is that, uh, you know, back in 2016, when the Internet Research Agency was uh, working on this disinformation campaign, uh, there, it, there were a lot of articles written that didn't look like they were written by uh, Americans or English-speaking journalists. A lot of them were, were kind of ham-handed uh, efforts at uh, providing disinformation, but still there was a lot of information on bots that was amplified. But in this case, they've, they've gone out and hired uh, American journalists to, to write articles that uh, uh, they, they sought to diminish the candidacy of Vice President Biden. So uh, this, this is just part of a, an, uh, an overall campaign uh, that uh, we anticipate seeing, um, you know, you, you don't know you've been hacked or fooled with until it's happened and you've had a chance to do some analysis. So I think we're probably not, we're, this is probably the tip of the iceberg. I think you're right. And I think, you know, it, it gets at the sophistication of the audience that, that the Russians are trying to deal. Basically, their goal is to sow the seeds of distrust 
uh, and doubt into the American democracy. American democracy is busted. It can't do the job. Uh, your elections are going to be hacked. You're probably, you know, you're not going to know who's going to win. Uh, all sorts of anything they can do to make it appear that our system is not working. And Russians have been very good at this for a very, very long time. And during the Soviet era, the disinformation campaigns that they started uh, about, you know, where where did AIDS come from and all sorts of things like that. So there, it's not anything new. What's new is the... Uh, ability to get these words out using social media with millions of people just being able to click on a Facebook or Twitter account and, and have it. And what also is new is that we have the most high ranking person in this country who is participating in the process by sending out tweets and saying things that just patently aren't true. So it's going to be a difficult thing. And the United States government is not ranked up, ramped up to be able to do much, if anything, about it. There are isolated offices in the State Department and Homeland Security and things of this sort, but nobody is totally in charge with how do we make sure that the information that's put out there is correct and factual. It can be opinionated, you know. I like blue sky and somebody likes gray sky, but there is a sky, folks. So you've got to deal with reality. Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of it is um, on the on the edge between international issues uh, dealing with Russia and domestic issues where uh, one side or the other uh, falls on whether this is uh, uh, a true threat. Uh, last month, the director of the National Counterintelligence Center uh, announced that uh, the Russians, Chinese and Iran we're all trying to influence uh, voting in the forthcoming election, uh, but uh, the administration uh, officials uh, have been arguing that the Democrats are using the uh, the Russian threat uh, to uh, use that against uh, President Trump. Uh, the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, was on uh, Fox News on Sunday, and he said that uh, China, not Russia, was uh, the graver threat. But uh, you know, looking looking over, think that's correct. Well, the the intelligence. Uh, there are researchers who uh, have said that uh, China wants to increase their influence in the uh, the voting um, situation here, but so far, no direct evidence that Beijing is uh, has taken a direct action. So we'll we'll wait to see how that how that all shakes out. So it's part of the other thing. The twist on this is that that this came out because Facebook. Um, they announced that they're going to boot some of these guys off, right? This wasn't the United States government taking action against them. This was the private enterprise sector that did this. Yeah. And that's new. Uh, and they're tightening up a little bit uh, as to what they have done in the past, but nobody's in charge. It's kind of wild west out there. Yeah. And, you know, we, we have seen evidence that uh, Russia uh, used uh, efforts to influence elections in other places yeah. as kind of a testing ground. Well, they, they also got some bang for the buck, but uh, used it as a testing ground uh, before deploying those kinds of tactics uh, against the United States. And in fact, the uh, Secretary General of uh, NATO, uh, Anders Rusmussen, uh, he told uh, a, a uh, a committee that uh, unless the transatlantic community stands together, uh, malign foreign powers will continue to pick off democracies one by one. 
And uh, in this uh, the foreign affairs piece that I, I mentioned from their September, October edition, uh, Alina uh, uh, Polyakova writing uh, in an article called The Kremlin's Plot Against uh, Democracy, um, she noted that uh, in all likelihood, 2020 will not be a replay of 2016. It will be far worse. So uh, I, I think uh, we're just seeing the, uh, the tip of the iceberg and uh, we'll wait to, to see how that shakes out. Yeah, well, she also wrote that, that, you know, that this is sort of chicken feed. What the Russians spend to, make, to do this kind of activity is very, very small relative to the result they get. And from her perspective, the bang for the buck was uh, a remarkable foreign policy coup, quote unquote. A seemingly pro-Russian U.S. President Donald Trump, a humiliating defeat for Hillary Clinton, whom Russian President Vladimir Putin had long disliked, and above all, a chance to expose U.S. democracy as dysfunction. So that's Ms. Polyakova's take on the matter. And it's gonna keep going, so I, I think the, the first line of defense for, for me in this is a beefing up of the sophistication of the American electorate. I right. mean, you, you have to pay attention to, you know, where's this stuff coming from and what's going on? And is somebody really killing babies in the basement of a pizza parlor? And, you know, I, I mean, it's just the, the crazy stuff out there. So don't buy into it. Yeah. Well, you, you, you raise a good point, uh, Dick, that it's not just uh, foreign interference uh, we we have uh, domestic elements that are uh, putting out a lot of uh, bad bad stuff yeah. fake fake news i hate to use that word fake news it's become kind of a trite term but um, we have a lot of bad information floating around okay uh are you ready for your eastern med cruise i am i've got okay. put on my my hawaiian shirt on the eastern mediterranean so um, beautiful place, Pat. I guess a Hawaiian shirt uh, would work. Well, what we're talking about is uh, a face-off between Greece and Turkey, uh, two NATO allies. Um, they've they've uh, in the past had some contentious issues, uh, but for quite some time have been content uh, to uh, to coexist. I guess the the last. Um, dust up was the uh, the war over cyprus and yeah, you, you can 74 yeah 74 so to set the scene here you can see the uh, the mediterranean sea uh, turkey to the north uh, greece to the west and then the uh, large islands of uh, of crete um uh, just below the uh, the aegean sea and the island of cyprus closer towards uh, the levant syria and lebanon let me just jump in because it's important between greece and turkey there are hundreds if not thousands of small islands yeah and and, and that's part of the issue is to a who controls them and b does that, that little island have its own economic exclusive economic zone yeah so you'll get into that i'm sure so yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk about the uh, the EZ, and, and you can see on on the uh, map on the right hand side, uh, the line of control between uh, Greek controlled Cyprus and and Turkey controlled Cyprus, and and just a little history uh, in '74, 
there, there was a war between the Turkish Cypriots and the Greek Cypriots over control of the island. Uh, neither side uh, proved to be the victor. Uh, so there's a UN uh, line of control between uh, the north and the south there. And speaking of med cruises, uh, Dick, I was on a med cruise then and we had just left Corfu, Greece when the war mm. broke out and I was on a, an attack submarine and back in those days the Russians had lots of submarines so we were uh, assigned to sit off Cyprus and you never know what might have happened in terms of U.S. having to get involved so we sat mm -hmm. uh, sat there doing submarine kinds of things uh, for about a month and then we uh, returned to our base in Sardinia for upkeep and uh, were ordered to return to Cyprus. Uh, the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Cyprus was assassinated, yeah. uh, which, uh, which heightened uh, tensions. But uh, the, the tensions between Greece and Turkey go back uh, hundreds of years and they've, they've fought wars over Crete and they've fought over these islands. Uh, so they are not strangers to uh, squabbles with one another. Uh, I mean, Share a war story, Pat, but I think it was uh, around 1985. If you put that map back up there, you'll see um, Cyprus, well, the Greeks tried to pull off a coup and that triggered the Turks to say, no, we're gonna protect the northern part of the island, which Turkey says it controlled. So that blue line goes through, there's the line of control that after you know cooler heads prevailed, the basically the Greeks that were living in the northern part of the island all fled to the south and the Turks living in the south fled to the north and there was this line of control. In the middle of this line of control, the United States had a listening station. And when I went there, I had business with the State Department Embassy and uh, I don't think anybody had been in there in about five years or something. And I got a key and what? <laughs> went into the building and on the wall were the president's, President Reagan's photo, long gone, but you know, uh, that wasn't Reagan's photo, I'm sorry, it was Ford that was there, uh, 74. And you know, it was just the warp out of the past. So it's an interesting place. Anyway, moving on. Okay, so uh, you know, they, they've got um, uh, a history of, of bad blood between the two and, and uh, let's catch up with uh, the, the news uh, now, what's going on? Uh, there, there's squabbling over claims to uh, the territorial seas, and the uh, the the uh, kickoff event of this was a Turkish research ship uh, headed out to uh, do some drilling and research and look for uh, gas deposits uh, in the Mediterranean that uh, that they could. Uh, uh, capitalize on on those uh, those deposits and and we'll take a look at some of these claims here uh, you can see um, on the left the the uh, EEZ the exclusive economic zone and this is typically a zone that extends 200 miles from the low water point of, uh, of a piece of land uh, that's part of the territory but where you have multiple countries within close proximity the line is typically drawn 
straight down the middle. And then you can see that between Cyprus and Turkey and Cyprus and Syria, the, that's where the line roughly is. And on the left map, you can see the gas fields in the southern um, portion of that uh, part of the Mediterranean, the southeast, uh, Aphrodite and, and some others, uh, some that are within the Israeli EEZ, uh, some that are within the Egyptian EEZ. And then on the map on the, uh, the right, you can see that the Turkish claims, um, and they run right up against the EEZ of, the, uh, of, uh, of Cyprus. So this, this, is, uh, this is what we're talking about here. This, this section of uh, disputed uh, uh, territorial seas and economic exclusion zones that uh, Turkey is, uh, is looking um, looking to uh, to uh, explore and exploit the uh, the gas resources there, and Greece uh, will have none of it. So they've deployed uh, ships uh, to the area. There's been a collision between uh, ships belonging to uh, Greece and Turkey. Um, the uh, interestingly and and. I need to dig a little deeper on this. The, the United Arab Emirates, a Persian Gulf nation, which was recently in the news for normalizing relations with Israel, uh, they've deployed a squadron of F-16s to the island of Crete, uh, where they are exercising with the Greek uh, forces. The, uh, so the Crete, Greek, is, Crete is part of Greece. Yes, uh, Crete is, is an island that it's uncontested as, um, as being a, a part of uh, of Greece, so we'll uh, we'll just back up here a second and and uh, reorient everybody. So uh, Crete is the the island uh, just below the Aegean Sea, um, and uh, that's where the, the deployments are. So in in the Eastern Mediterranean, the French have sent warships, uh, and they are on the side of Greece. The European Union, uh, you know, Turkey and Greece are in NATO, but they, uh, uh, Turkey is not part of the European Union. So um, the EU has come out quite strong that uh, they will not uh, tolerate um, the, uh, the Turks' claims to gas that belongs to, uh, to Cyprus. And, and Cyprus, which is also part of the EU, uh, is uh, being uh, defended by uh, by the EU as well. So uh, the the story there is that there's a great potential for conflict. Uh, the United States has sent a vessel uh, to the area. You know, the United States has the sixth fleet in the area, uh, but uh, for some reason, the the ship they sent was not a especially <laughs> A fearsome-looking vessel. This is uh, this this is the ship that uh, the Woody. Uh, yeah, the the Woody. Um, what was the full name? The uh, USS Dick. Do you have that? Uh, Ed? I'm I'm looking for it here. Uh, the USS Herschel Williams. There it is. Nicknamed the Woody. Uh, Herschel Woody Williams. It's it's actually an ex expeditionary sea base. So this is the uh, the ship that is representing the United States in the area. Uh, we uh, we've taken the position where we want the, the two sides uh, to step back a little bit and and not get uh, further well, involved. It's, in it's it's spilling over as well because of uh, what's going on with with Syria and Egypt and Libya and sides are being chosen and. 
know, as Turkey is supporting one particular faction in Libya and they're getting too close to Egypt as far as Egypt's concerned. So Greece and Egypt have sort of tried to uh, form a little deal and help each other out. So it's, it's getting very complex and dangerous. And as you know, if somebody takes a wrong turn or a shot gets fired, a lot of bad stuff can happen. And Erdogan is a populist. And he's gonna, you know, Turkey forever, make Turkey great again. Um, the Greek prime minister, I think, is probably a little more measured in his approach, but it's a dicey situation. Yeah, the, the Turkish side has definitely ratcheted up the, uh, the rhetoric, which uh, a lot of observers uh, seem to think that will make it difficult for them to come to some negotiated uh, position. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Erdogan, for example, I'm just uh, quoting here from the press uh, last week warned Athens that, quote, if it wants to pay the price, let it come, let it come and face us. And he added, Turkey will take what is its right in the Mediterranean, in the Aegean, and in the Black Sea. So he's basically, you know, trying to make Turkey back into the Ottoman Empire and control the whole region. But it's not going to happen as far as other folks are concerned. Yeah. Well, um, Dick, anything more on uh, the Eastern Mediterranean? Uh, uh, have, you, have you been there other than your trip to, uh, to Cyprus? Uh, a cruise to the uh, the islands, uh, Santorini to, maybe? I uh, haven't had done a cruise, but I've been to Turkey three or four times. It's a beautiful, fascinating country. Uh, the whole country is fascinating. And, you know, the, the coast areas on the Mediterranean are great. Been to Greece. In fact, when I was stationed in Poland, there was an oppressive communist dictatorship and the State Department said, you know, you guys need to get out and get away So for some R&R. So we went to Greece for R&R. Very and nice. It was, it was wonderful. Very nice. Yeah. Well, we had, we had- We had- sat in the bottom of the, in the, in the submarine, right? Did you get shore at all? Uh, yeah, we, well, on the submarine, we pulled into Corfu, Greece. And we had quite a lovely okay. uh, stay. Uh -huh. the, the island was uh, prepared for the USS Forrestal, which is an aircraft carrier with 5,000 sailors on board. Yeah. And because of the uh, tensions increasing, on Cyprus, the Forrestal was kept at sea. So uh, in, in drove the USS Pargo, an attack submarine with about 110 guys. Uh, and here's this island expecting 5,000 sailors. And so we, uh, we, were, we were quite- Uh-huh, <laughs> I can quite, imagine. Yeah, quite, quite uh, surprised that we had uh, as much liberty as we could absorb, but then a month on station off the coast of Cyprus. And I've been to, uh, to Athens and, and uh, had a lovely time, beautiful country. And I've been to Turkey um, with the World Affairs Council, took, uh, uh, went with a group and had a, a fascinating experience in Istanbul and a, yeah. a uh, circumnavigation of the Sea of Marmara in, in the Straits and down to um, Gallipoli. Istanbul is, has to be one of the most interesting cities in the world. I would yeah, love to just maybe go over there and get a little apartment somewhere and spend six months and just every day go out and bumble around and see what you find because it's just yeah. incredibly rich in history and culture. So it's wonderful. Well, let me know when you're ready to go. Speaking of uh, ready to go, let's uh, take a look at our uh, question oh, of the week. Yeah, we got to uh, we got button this up. 
Uh, answer to the quiz, uh, the Office of the, of the DNI will no longer brief key congressional committees on this issue, election security. And uh, as you might imagine, there has been quite a pushback from the Congress. Uh, they are threatening to uh, take whatever measures are necessary to reverse this decision by the DNI. Uh, and, and this comes as uh, there have been some other actions to inhibit the flow of information. Uh, you may recall earlier this year, the, the worldwide threat brief that the heads of uh, CIA, DIA, and NSA, um, and that's the National Security Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the Central Intelligence Agency, along with the DNI, uh, they, they were uh, with, withheld uh, by the White House from briefing Congress. I think uh, that, that stemmed from the previous year when the threat briefing indicated that uh, North Korea was uh, continuing to build nuclear weapons and missiles, and, and that didn't sit well with the White House, which might have had a different uh, take on things. You know, Pat, unless I'm mistaken, you know, the, the reason given for not briefing Congress and Congress saying, you know, we, we have a constitutional oversight here. We need to know what's going on. We can't perform our, our, our function correctly. And the reason given was, well, in these oral briefings, there's just too much leaking. And so I'm thinking they're gonna give briefings, but it's all gonna be written material. Now, if anything's easier to leak <laughs> than, than somebody you know, who's you're talking, it's a piece of paper. So it, it makes no sense to me other than that uh, there's, there's stuff going on that, that people well, in if high it, places don't if, want the other side to know. If you turn in a report, they can't ask you questions. That's right. And that's, that's exactly correct. So, other than write back and say, I'd like you to explain this further. And that just, you know, the process breaks down very quickly. Yeah. All righty. Well, hopefully we'll have, have a good uh, week. we'll have Dr. Breck Walker uh, back with us soon, and we'll be back again. Uh, our our new time for our live broadcast of the Global News Review is every Wednesday at uh, 1 p.m. Central Time. Uh, we uh, look forward to uh, your questions and uh, and comments. Uh, feel free to. Uh, Tell us how we're doing by email at info at tnwac.org. Take a look at our website, our calendar of events. Again, we have the COVID-19 uh, program tonight, the 2nd of September, and tomorrow, the 3rd of September. And we start our election 2020 programming on the 10th of September. Our first uh, program will be on China with Dr. Susan Haynes as, uh, as our chair and some uh, terrific uh, panelists. Again, um, extraordinary and what is it? Uh, plenty potentiary. Plenty potentiary. Yep. We'll have some of those too. So, uh, <laughs> Your Excellency, thank you uh, once again for taking thank time you. on your Wednesday afternoon. Pleasure to be with you. Have a have a good rest of the day, and we'll see you next week. Yes, sir. Take care. Bye bye.